Welcome to Sibylline Podcasts, part of our insight series where we aim to provide relevant, timely and actionable analysis in a discursive format. We hope you enjoy listening and welcome any feedback. Please visit our website for more insight series updates. And as always, like, subscribe and share. Hello, and welcome to Sibylline's podcast series. Jonathan Dunbar here, Sibylline's Director for Europe, the Middle East and Africa. Today, I'm joined by Ben Manzan, our Sub-Saharan Africa Analyst, and James Barth, our North America Analyst, to discuss our latest series of reporting, the Global Extremism Quarterly. James, beyond the title, what's this report about? Well, this report provides insight into terrorism and extremism trends across the globe. It has three different sections which allow it to address kind of the longer term trends identified at the start of the year, as well as more ad hoc developments identified as the year goes on and, and new threats emerge. So the, these three sections are developments to watch, annual themes, and there's an annex section as well. The developments to watch responds to the ever-changing dynamics of extremism by highlighting new developments that we identify within each quarter that will impact clients. Naturally, these are different each quarter and allow us to be flexible uh, and current in our analysis. For example, at the start of the year last year, no one would have predicted the ways in which both right-wing extremism and left-wing extremism interacted with social justice protests. So that's something that can be picked up in this report. Then we have annual themes, which track six global themes identified at the start of the year and provides updates on these that have seen the most significant changes in the threat environment each quarter. This allows us to identify broad holistic trends relevant for clients and then follow these developments over the course of the year so that clients can see any significant increase or decreases in these threats. By flagging these at the start of the year, we kind of provide an early warning signal for potential triggers in, in escalating or de-escalating threats. And finally, the annex section, um, pretty hefty. It provides a threat rating for over 30 different extremist groups throughout the world as well as an overview of the ideology, the targets, recent developments for all of these groups. The ratings are split into threats to business, threats to citizens and threats to governments um, and allow for variation in the threats posed by each group. Um, so some groups may, be, may pose a very particular and strong threat to government, but less so to businesses just by the nature of their ideology and the sorts of targets they go after. So what's prompted the release of this report now um, and the timing, what's, what's relevant about that? Well, I mean, to sum it up, the, the pace of change in the threat landscape of terrorism and extremism is unprecedented. And we're creating this report as a response to help clients track, understand, and, and manage these threats. Um, that isn't to say that the threat of terrorism wasn't evolving before. Uh, terrorism is always evolving. Um, groups have always responded to new global dynamics. They've shifted their weapons and targets of choice. Um, and adapted to new technology and recruitment methods. However, the past few years, and certainly the last year in particular, have seen a radical global shift. Um, in my own area of expertise, in Canada, for instance, there was a 200% increase uh, from 100 to 300 far-right extremist groups since 2015 alone, which is representative of a kind of renewed threat from far-right extremism globally. Simultaneously, the formation of and now collapse of the Islamic State has created new opportunities for groups specifically in Sub-Saharan Africa to grow. Left-wing extremism, largely dormant for a number of years uh, since the start of the 2000s, 
has seen a massive resurgence, uh, increasingly prominent in the US and Germany in particular, with attempted and successful attacks, for instance, in the US, increasing by more than fourfold uh, in 2020 on 2019 levels. The pandemic exacerbated many of these trends and also brought in new trends to light. And this report really is a direct response to these changes. So what are the uh, developments to watch and annual themes that we're looking at for this quarter as we move forward? So for this quarter, the two developments to watch that we've identified are that far left groups in Europe and the US are using pandemic and mainstream narratives uh, to, well, they've co-opted these narratives to further their own extremism narratives, uh, and in doing so are likely to gain support and further radicalize those who are already within these organizations. The second development to watch that we have uh, looks at France's ban of the right-wing extremist group Generation Identitaire, um, which we assess is unlikely to reduce the threat posed by this group, uh, primarily because it, it's kind of hitting the target with, with how to respond uh, to this sort of threat. There are six annual themes that we identified at the start of this year. These are uh, COVID-19 compounding the rise of the far right across Europe and the US. Consolidation of Sahelian gains is driving expansion into new territory. Terror attacks are more concentrated in Iraq and Syria as ISIS grows there, but are declining elsewhere in the region. The faltering Afghan peace process is driving instability in South Asia. Uh, Brazilian right-wing groups are turning to QAnon conspiracy theories. And increased competition for territory is threatening international investment. This quarter, we've identified the consolidation of Sahelian gains uh, driving expansion to new territory and the faltering Afghan peace process as the two primary themes to watch, uh, themes that have had developments this past quarter that, that clients should be aware of going forward. Thank you for that, James. Let's have a look at one of those that you've pu pulled out in the uh, six themes that we're currently tracking, specifically the, uh, the, the issues in the Sahel and the um, surging jihadist threat there. Ben, this is obviously your patch, you know, um, and, and you've been watching this for a while. How has this conflict in the Sahel developed over, over the first quarter of uh, 2021? Well, thanks, John. I, I want to say right from the off that this situation in the Sahel represents a sort of development on an existing trend rather than a major change or divergence from it, a sort of consolidation and expansion, primarily in areas which have always seen or already seen high degrees of conflict, which is driving um, international and regional concerns about further expansion into uh, the West African region and particularly the Gulf of Gu states in the Gulf of Guinea. Over recent years, we've seen jihadist groups primarily based in Mali successfully expand southwards and, and westwards um, into um, Burkina Faso and Niger. A key to this expansion has been the prioritization of rural communities and connecting themselves to particular communities that have been historically marginalized by um, states in the region that have complicated historical relationships with um, sedentary communities. So this is primarily communities such as the Tuaregs and the Fulanis. By connecting themselves to these communities, they, they serve, they, they gain a number of advantages. Firstly, 
because of their kind of semi-transitory culture, they gain access to international trafficking networks that have been utilized by some within these communities. They gain access to uh, a, a community which spans borders, allowing them to travel in um, to expand internationally. They gain access to a a community that has suffered at the hands of the state and therefore is perhaps more receptive to their messaging. Now, I, I, I want to say right from the off that to say that they have inserted themselves, uh, you know, tried to connect themselves to these communities is not to say that they have fully encapsulated them or, or have full support from them. But by doing a number of things, namely removing alternative sorts of authority by attacking traditional leadership, attacking religious leaders or, or even kind of social leaders such as teachers, they can reduce alternative forms of authority and therefore give themselves a leg up within these communities. Additionally, by exacerbating intercommunal tensions, by attacking historic uh, ethnic rivals, um, sedentary farming communities that have had long-standing territorial disputes with these communities, by exacerbating those conflicts, they can more effectively uh, utilize the pressures that these communities come under. For example, by attacking sedentary communities, they force backlash, which then places these communities under pressure and strain, forcing them to turn to jihadists for greater protection. By doing things like this, by, by removing forms of authority and by exacerbating existing conflicts, they can increase the well of recruits in these areas and increase, and by doing that, increase their ability to expand territorially. This is exactly what we've seen them, do, seen them continue to do in the first quarter of 2021. In Niger, this has been most evident by a shift this quarter to a number of high casualty attacks on civilian com communities. And uh, this started at the beginning of the year with, I think, what was then one of the most violent incidents in Niger's history, history with 105 killed um, right um, in January in two villages in the Tilaberi region. And then that was topped only a few months later with now the most violent instance in Niger's history, the killing of 137 people in the Tahao region, bordering Mali, just a few weeks ago in March. These high casualty attacks are, des are clearly designed to exacerbate these intercommunal tensions in the same way as they have um, successfully done in Mali and Burkina Faso, to drive backlash and therefore increase their ability to recruit within pastoral communities in, in Niger. In Burkina Faso, jihadist groups take a slightly slight different uh, tack. Instead of continuing these high-profile, uh, these high-casualty attacks, we've seen them attempt to engage the Burkina government in negotiations, or, or they have already engaged them in negotiations to resolve some, uh, to result in some informal peace agreements in in, in parts of the country, uh, particularly the Sum province, where which has seen a decrease in violence in the, in this quarter. Now, what this gives them space to do is continue to develop communal connections in these areas, having already um, established themselves amongst the amongst pastoral communities in this area, and also allows them to act as sort of representatives for that community by engaging the government. They see they kind of legitimise themselves as um, as defenders of of Fulani people. You know, we we will cease violence 
in exchange for the release of prisoners and also uh, in, in, the, in exchange for the release of uh, the assurance that the military will cease attacks on Fulani people with with um, with, with jihadis who have been interviewed saying we will return to violence if Fulanis are attacked again. So they, they establish themselves as representatives for, of, of this community by taking this slightly different tack. Similarly, in other parts of the country, uh, we've seen them continue to attack local militia forces that have been established to defend against jihadists. These are kind of ethnically based uh, vigilante groups who have previously been involved in, a, in kind of ethnically motivated attacks against Fulani people. And so by continuing to, in, continuing to attack these groups, they demonstrate their enduring commitment to the defense of this community. So therefore, you know, so you can see both in Niger and Burkina Faso, their attempts to consolidate and strengthen their connections to these targeted communities that they believe they can drive greater recruits from, greater resources from, and key, and, and most importantly, the revenue streams that are fundamental to funding their, their campaigns in the Sahel. So you've mentioned Mali, Burkina Faso and Niger there, Ben. What about the wider region? I mean, we've seen some forays in the northern Cote d'Ivoire, um, but there are concerns about other countries in the region, you know, Senegal, Ghana. What about those? Right. So, I mean, in, in this course, we did see Bernard Emi, uh, the French head of the General Directorate for External Security, flag a potential expansion towards uh, Benin and Cote d'Ivoire. Now, this... This took place moments that uh, during a moment where the French were clearly trying to leverage greater commitment from their regional allies to um, combat jihadist groups. The French were threatening to withdraw troops. Um, there was a, a large conference taking place, uh, and and subsequently France has, has sort of pulled back from from those threats. So it, 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 it seems likely that th that statement took place in the context of the sort of cat and mouse game uh, the French authorities play with their, with their regional partners. But it did, um, it did come only weeks before um, a coordinated attack was launched against two border points in northern Côte d'Ivoire. So the, the potential for expansion is, is definitely still there. Additionally, um, within Mali, efforts to continue their expansion westward in the country are clearly driving threats to um, countries along its western border, most notably Senegal. So we, we've seen efforts to increase recruitment in, the, in a western city um, in, in, in Mali, Kays. And it, it seems likely that this effort to increase the recruitment here will also translate across the, across the border with uh, only in the last quarter, four men arrested um, in Kadira, eastern Senegal, around 100 kilometers from Kays, due to alleged connections with jihadist groups. So the, the expansion within Mali, Burkina Faso, Niger, and the kind of consolidation of their holdings does seemingly present a platform for further expansion within the regions, for further incursions, for further attempts to recruit and build connections and build and build influence in surrounding countries. Now, it's important to note that this isn't, this isn't unprecedented. Um, even in Cote d'Ivoire, even in the same border post that was attacked recently, um, 
in, in June of last year, that, that same border post was attacked again, you know, killing 14 soldiers. So this, this doesn't, this, it would be hard to go from these sort of annual incidents to say, oh, well, this one indicates imminent expansion into Cote d'Ivoire. These sorts of things have happened before. Um, similarly, in, in Benin, there was a kidnapping incident in the Panjari um, National Park to, to, you know, near the border with Burkina Faso back in May 2019. So the, the threat to these, border, to these countries along the border of the Sahel goes back quite some way. But a consolidation of, of their position within, within these countries does threaten to increase the regularity of such incidents, the ease in which they can organize cross-border uh, incursions. So, 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 so basically, I, I, think, I think the key thing to take away in terms of the threat to you know, West, West Africa in general and, and the Gulf of Guinea is that th this consolidation and expansion in Burkina Faso, Mali, Niger is, is, is key to any further pushes. And as their, as their position is further strengthened, further, incur further incursions are, are likely. And, and so that, that situation needs to be watched very closely. So given these developments around, you know, the wider region, Ben, what does this mean for companies operating there? And how is this likely to affect them? Well, I think for the most part, the success of their current strategy, they're focusing on rural areas, they're focusing on, on building connections with particular communities from which they derive their resources and their recruits. I, I think we'll see them stick with this strategy. It's proved very effective for them. Uh, a shift towards attacking cities, which would likely be costly in terms of how much resource and effort they would have to put into them for seemingly li relatively little limited results. Um, seems unlikely. So, you know, businesses based in major cities, are, are, I think, are unlikely to be directly targeted by these groups because, because they operate in a, in a sphere that, that offers limited rewards for, for jihadist groups to uh, focus on kind of territorial expansion. However, we have seen in previous years, most notably on the attack of, um, of Semifo employees um, near the Bongu mine in Burkina Faso in November 2019, that this expansion within these rural areas does threaten overland movement um, and can impact businesses whose sort of, you know, manufacturing and production is, is located in sort of isolated rural areas. So that, that, will be, that will remain the key threat, really, that as these groups consolidate their control of, of rural areas, the, the threats will increase to, um, uh, you know, the overland movement of goods and personnel, the assets that are sort of located in rural areas do, do run the risk of becoming sort of surrounded by, by areas in which jihadist groups move freely, potentially cutting them off or, or, pre or preventing them from operating. The Bongu mine, for, for example, back in November 2019, had to suspend operations and then only resumed um, in February, once the company had committed to moving staff via helicopter. So this, so this expansion clearly presents threats to businesses, albeit uh, primarily those located outside of major cities and primarily to, to goods and personnel in transit rather than um, specific targeting of assets. Thank you, James. Thank you, Ben. Um, and for all of those who have joined us today, you know, the report is being released um, and should you like to receive a copy, 
please do get in touch at info at uk. As per our other podcasts, we're now going to move on to our events to watch over the next uh, week and uh, see what's on the radar on the analytical front there. I'm joined by Edward Johnson, our Insight Team Manager, who will highlight a few of the events that we should take note of. Ed, thank you for joining me. What's on your radar? Hi, Jonathan. Uh, thank you very much for having me. All right, well, this week uh, we'll be looking at uh, to maintain a, a, an eagle eye on Russia's military buildup along its border with Ukraine, um, which is driving tensions in the region. This is a situation that's likely to be compounded by uh, a 15th of April decision by the US to impose further sanctions on Russia for alleged uh, election interference last year. This is going to undermine Washington's ability to broker a summit between Kiev and Moscow to reduce those tensions. And while we believe an all-out conflict still remains unlikely, the situation will continue to evolve and we will, of course, be, be monitoring that. Similarly, in Northern Ireland, the uh, domestic unrest is uh, the trend of that we've seen over the past couple of weeks is, is set to continue, especially in Belfast, with sectarian tensions uh, very much uh, on the rise there. The continuation of unrest and violence risks a, a broader escalation of tensions that could trigger a reprisal violence between both loyalist and Republican communities. Away from, from Europe, it's been the, the 12th of April saw the start of Ramadan across the Muslim world. Um, and for the foreseeable uh, month, business activity uh, across that region will um, be, be slowed accordingly. Moving on, uh, the Afghan Peace Summit is scheduled to be held in Istanbul between the Taliban and the Afghan government uh, from the 24th of April to the 4th of May. Uh, this probably represents one of the last chances for an agreement between the two sides before the, the now announced uh, US troop withdrawal by the 11th of September 2021. However, there is uncertainty as to whether the Taliban will even attend the event. Um, as the group has said, it needs to reconsider its path forward given uh, the US's annou announcement uh, that it will withdraw from, from the country. There is a risk for a fragile security situation in the country to worsen as both the US and NATO troops begin to leave. Um, you know, the emphasis here will be on, on, on determining what the Taliban will do next um, and what plan it, it will put in place to uh, put pressure on, on the Afghan government for further concessions. Thank you for that, Ed. So quite, quite a lot to uh, keep, a, keep a lookout for over the next seven days. Quite a dynamic week there. Again, thank you to all of you who have joined us on, on the podcast today. As ever, should you want to know more, please do get in touch. The uh, email address again is info at uk. Thank you and goodbye. <laughs>